Hello and welcome to Do The Franchise with me, Jake. And me, James. And we are back again. We've had another little bit of time away. Um, I, you know what's really funny? It used to be a bi-monthly bi, uh, podcast. It used to say bi-monthly on our... Uh, do you know if you go on iTunes and have a look at it? Yeah. And now it just says, eh, monthly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, could, we could tie it in, Jake. We've we've actually both been in some sort of cryo sleep, and yeah, mother's just woken us. Exactly, exactly. My cryo sleep was uh, in the US, and James's cryo sleep was in Huddersfield. <laughs> some but, some of us are more glamorous than others, Jake. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I was visiting family, and um, what else has happened? You've had some holiday. I've had some holiday. Um, but we've both been doing our own thing, so we've not really been around. And I haven't even seen you in the flesh until the other day, really. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's taken us a while to get back on track. But uh, we 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 left our dear listeners last time uh, reviewing Ridley Scott. We did. Uh, yes. So we thought we'd we'd do a bit more of that because he's a decent chap, and I, yeah. I feel like I massively maligned his back catalogue. So <laughs> it's time to uh, to make up for what we did last time. Yeah, it's a really, really nice little segue straight into the film that we're reviewing today and the new franchise that we are starting as of today, which is Alien. Ooh. Ooh. Ironically, my notes on my Mac haven't updated, so I've got the sequel and I've got Lethal Weapon 4. Oh, no, there it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> Alien, it just says Alien 1, so this is not to be confused with any of the other Alien films or any other films that feature an alien. This no, is just Alien. <laughs> alien 1, I like it. Uh, IMDb gave Alien a 8.5 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes gave it 98%. Uh, it came out in September of 1979, and it's a Ridley Scott film, as you uh, as you introduced earlier. Crazy long time. That's a lot. That's a long time ago. It is. It is. It's uh, yeah. It it feels newer than that. Yeah, I think I that's very really fair. Is is like a testament to how much I like it. Anyway, it feels like it could have been made last year. Yeah, I've put in my notes at the top. I just put this is pretty much a near perfect movie when it comes to. I guess it's a film that defined a genre. At the same yeah. time, it kind of reinvented and reinvigorated a genre. Before this, the science fiction genre was mainly B-movies. Um, yes. There is a really fun thing that I learned about this film. I don't know if it's in my five facts, but if it is, I'm going to ruin it now anyway. Um, <laughs> but this film kind of exists because of Star Wars, because of the success that Star Wars brought in 1977 with Fox. Oh, um, okay. And before that, there wasn't really a, a, a cry out for science fiction films. Science fiction films weren't like they are now. They weren't commonplace. So the idea that they got sort of Star Wars out in 77 becomes this monster hit. And then all the movie studios around Hollywood are kind of like aching, gagging for some sort of um, science fiction script. So anyone that had a half-decent sci-fi script in the late 70s, they were crying out for them, and this is where Alien came from. Without right. that, they say that there's a really good chance that Alien would never have made it off the pile of scripts. Wow. Well, it makes a lot of sense, because like, say up until that point, uh, Hollywood was like keenly invested in sort of World War II and Western films. Mm, and anti-heroes and uh, gangster yeah. films. So now we've, we're moving into, yeah, the 80s is kind of like the decade of the future, isn't it? Everything had yeah. to be neon and futuristic yeah. and 
so yeah, so th- that makes perfect sense. Star Wars was being, you know, ha- having been so successful. Uh, it's crazy that, isn't it? Like you said, that like we see the late 70s, early 80s as all they were the resurgence of Hollywood because in the early 70s and, you know, after, during the Vietnam War, Hollywood was kind of on the back foot. It was on its arse a little bit. And then all these amazing movies came out late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, 90s, and then it leads us to the modern era. But you kind of yeah. feel like without these trail these trailblazers, would we have had the Hollywood institution? Would it have survived? Would it still be like it is today? And would it have continued if it weren't for these monster hit films that came out in the late 70s? It's interesting, isn't it? It is. It, it's, uh, yeah, and, and you were starting to see, obviously, the emergence of new technologies for doing things, you know, visually... Mm-hmm. Uh, storytellers were able to make things happen that they couldn't do before yeah. um, I think that's quite telling in this uh, in this film yeah there are still hangovers from what I would say they're kind of the unthought of ideas of how the future would have been and what I mean by this it's hard to kind of describe Star, Star Wars started the new the, the used future and I put that I sort of did inverted commas there but no one can see <laughs> um, but the used future was this concept that you live in a science fiction world that's not glossy that has been lived in yeah and and Star Wars is a perfect example of that Blade Runner is quite a good example of that as well you're in a dingy dirty future that maybe hadn't really been as nice as we've been introduced to and prior to that a lot of science fiction films because they directed these glossy glamorous sets they were look they were new and crisp and mm. sci-fi was always clean edges wasn't it and, and glass and chrome and white yeah. you sort of Doctor Who TARDIS kind of vibe and then they had to they had to do this thing where all sci-fi after Star Wars became the used future concept. And uh, this is funny because in this, they imagine that these oil rig workers on this spaceship or whatever they are, they're, they're mining an ore of some sort. Yeah. But they're all smoking <laughs> in space, <laughs> which I just think it it's one of the only things in the film that age the film badly, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, you, you turn around and there isn't like a, <laughs> a no smoking sign in sight. It's all like... You've just woken up from cryosleep. God knows where you are. But let's have a fag because it's <laughs> yeah. it's about time. You know, we've been we've been asleep for all this time, and yeah. not one of us has had a cigarette. So it's time for a smoke break. It's so uh, strange, and, and, and I was gonna say I really didn't want to start this, this episode like this, but I couldn't get past the fact that like. Dallas, the captain, has got this sort of mullet type, this sort of classic cut, 70s vibe haircut. Um, the the outfits, the smoking, this idea of them going, oh, it's the future. You go, it isn't the future. This is clearly the 70s. Yeah, this is this is so 70s. Uh, and if, if Ridley is listening, which we all know he is... Um, it does get better. This this review will get a lot better, but this Absolutely. was just a very nitpicky opening. But yeah. the uh, the the fact of you know this being the the used future, um, I, I my notes that's the earliest thing I've put down that the yeah. the, the ship is dirty and lived mm. in. Um, yeah, and and we get basically a, a big chunk of time goes by before we hear any actual dialogue or acting because it's mm. the ship is the actor the ship is the main actor in this first scene because you you basically have all these panning shots and moving shots through the ship to to really give you an idea of where you are in it because i again this could be like um, an influence from from star wars but 
you didn't really get a, um, a good idea of sort of like the the mm. geography of say the Millennium Falcon when you watch the first film. Yeah. Because they just end up going from one cockpit to the gunnery area to uh, you don't see any movement through it really. Yeah, you don't. Uh, whereas in this film, it's it, it, that's the first sort of six minutes of the film almost is you just walking through the Nostromo. Figuring I think that's out great, though. I think that oh, works yeah. really well. I was putting like in the, 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 the title sequence alone is so eerie and it's so ahead of its time that that, that somber drumming vibration sound that you get over the credits when they come. Do you know what I mean? Like that, yeah, it's I wouldn't even call it music. There is the music, there's the soft jingle, um, which plays throughout this film, which I'm not going to do because I'm not a very good, uh, I'm not a very good musically minded person, <laughs> but there's a sort of melody, isn't there? There's a there's a yeah. melodic tone music, and then on top of that is this rushing, horrible, like an air vent sound of airiness that goes over the top of whenever you see the alien like title and it pans across the planets, and that really does set the tone for the film. Oh, definitely, yeah. It's it, um, it, it again. I think this is in my notes somewhere further down, but it's worth bringing in now. It in this film, they're not afraid to use no dialogue you know they're not afraid yeah. to uh, almost bring everything down to the bare minimum of sound um it it seems like if you watch a modern blockbuster it can't not have something from Hans Zimmer blaring in the background you know it's got to have some mm. sort of sound there there's very few films now where you end up with an absence of sound being the thing that that's most noticeable whereas this film yeah. really plays on that it's really interesting that you say that because um, Dune, a good example of a new science fiction film that came out last year, an amazing masterpiece of filmmaking. It is really good, but it does that thing where the soundtrack is almost its own character. It's big, it's brash, it's loud, and that won an Academy Award. Uh, Star Wars, you take the music away, it doesn't really work. Star yeah. Trek was all about the music and the music and this huge climactic, melodic, you know, classical theme of speeding off into the future. You know, same as the Superman theme. They're all larger than life themes. That without that theme, does the film suffer? Probably a little bit, yeah. yeah. With this, you don't really have an iconic theme and therefore the film can't suffer for not having it. So actually, the little melody that we get just adds to that sense of tension, that building yeah. of dread and terror and eeriness. And there was always that thing of uh, the original poster, the, the tagline for the film was, in space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, and that that music kind of captures that feeling really well, I think, and it makes you feel that sense of loneliness almost. That the music is quite distant. Yeah, it it this doesn't feel like a welcoming place, does it? No, you, know, you, you you're not exploring lush new lands. You you know they uh, when they do go to a planet, it's pretty inhospitable. You know, it's yeah. not. This isn't. You know, this isn't Star Trek. Like you say, this isn't them going off to meet new people. They've they've been rudely awoken. They were on their way home, as far as mm. all the characters are concerned. You know, mission. We've joined them at like the 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 end of a mission. Yeah, that gets diverted, and it, it's that uncertainty and and the the score really helps with that. I think it, it's oh, the lack of a score in that sense helps with that. What would you define this as? Because I know it's obviously defined as a science fiction horror. Which yeah. before that, there wasn't really that genre. That didn't really exist, did it? No, no. I think it's it's one of those films that's re it's had a few different sort of looks on it. Obviously, 
it happens in space. So it's, it, I think sci-fi is definitely part of it. Mm. There's definitely horror to it as well. Uh, some people have called it a, a body horror. Yeah, um, I've definitely, you know, I've definitely seen people look at it from that aspect. There's several things in the film that are, you know, obviously uh, Geiger's accused of being overly sexualized with his mm. his designs. Um, even some of the terminology that they've used for like the mechanical things end up being very bodily functional. Mm. Um, so the uh, the the lock holding the craft on the ship is called the umbilical cord. Mm-hmm. For example, so there's there's definitely like an element of mm. body. And the ship's computer is called Mother. Mother, yeah. So there's, there's there's definitely like the humanistic, sort of primordial kind of stuff going on. I, and so yeah, it, it's in terms of genre, it sort of skirts around a few areas, and it seems to do all of those things very well. So you can see why people, you know, who are very strongly on it being pure sci-fi. You can make that argument. People who are strongly uh, uh, being a, almost a pure horror, yeah, you, you can get on board with that. I, um, doing some reading around it. I hope this doesn't spoil any of your five facts, but I read that um, someone uh, frequently in Hollywood, you'd have people sort of pre-reading scripts uh, mm. and giving basic synopses to, to studios. And someone described this as Jaws in Space. Hmm. Uh, and that's how it was sold. Uh, it's like Jaws, that's but good. in space. I was like, actually, yeah. So that that that's someone who's basically just grabbed hold of the 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 horror element of it, really. Yeah, the scary um, element of it, not yeah. the science fiction element. I don't yeah. know if this film would work with a generic B movie director because you've got Ridley, mm. you've got Derek um, Van Lint as the cinematographer. I think that that auteur artistic um, sort of journey they went on to make this film with the inspiration from Geiger and his artwork it all comes together really well to make something really unsettling and yeah. clearly it's become popular because it's spanned this huge franchise that's still going today um, yeah I put in my notes, I don't know, I think I've ever seen a movie that can both look dated and fresh at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's a fair assessment of it, because there, there are certain things. Because um, obviously we're, we're dealing with uh, a, a world where like cryosleep is a thing, mm-hmm. and you can sleep your way home, basically, and it helps avoid the the time it takes to get you from one place to another. And then at the same time, I've written down that uh, space communication sounds a lot like dial-up broadband. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's really poor, isn't it? Yeah. This was another thing where, and I hate to talk about it because I know we're not. I don't want to do too much about Star Wars, but that was that thing about Star Wars, and they're like, they've got light speed travel. You're like, oh yeah, they've got lightsabers and laser guns. You know, they can't get a decent communication when it comes to a hologram. There, they all look shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, why do all the holograms in Star Wars always look shit? And I always remember thinking that was really funny. Like, oh, yeah, that doesn't really make any sense. They've got all this technology, but their holograms never work properly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did put a note in my thing, which just read... Uh, I've only just read this. I must have written this, like, four or five days ago. Who the fuck brought a cat into space? <laughs> and also, Jones, the cat, yeah. did, he, did he go into cryo with them? Was he just on the ship? Like, he, he was, was he a kitten? Was Did they bring a kitten on board and just let it grow up? <laughs> he must have gone in, because I think to, at the end, doesn't he go into cryo 
with Ripley at the end. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he goes into her pod. So, so, yeah, so he, he must have been... I, I mean, he is a pain in the bottom, but like like he's he's actually the probably the most accurate depiction of a cat in a science mm. fiction movie I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Um, way, way better than um, Marvel did cats. <laughs> well, and Captain Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just couldn't get the idea that they're, they're, they're smoking on the ship. Okay, whatever, I can buy that. Yeah. But who brought a cat onto the ship? And why? Like, it's just them going, you're in cryo for, like, years. You're going to be yeah. on this distant journey. What do cats like? Well, cats like mice. They like to chase stuff. Yeah. They like to be outside, and they like to be snuggled up. Yeah. They eat and they poo in a literary, right? Yeah, that's pretty much a cat's life. I, mean, I don't get any of that in this film. So what? It's not a suitable environment for a cat. <laughs> no, it really isn't. Jones did not live a very good life, I don't think, on the Nostromo. I think he's uh, he, he's probably wishing he was a, a house cat. And again, like you said, it's the best depiction of a cat because it kind of doesn't give a shit. Yeah. And it gets, um, and it gets one of the characters killed. Kind yeah. of inadvertently, but yeah, I it, thought it, to myself, you bring a dog for company. Dogs love company. Cats can give a shit about company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cat, uh, the space is probably a more warm and welcoming feeling than having a cat sometimes. Um, <laughs> well, your cat's quite nice, but I'm talking sort of cats generally. Oh, no, no. My cat has her moments, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I don't understand the... the purpose of a cat obviously on a like an actual ship seafaring ship yeah. cats would you know catch and kill rats and things like that i suppose so yeah yeah that makes but, sense not on a spaceship not not so much on a spaceship i mean it, let's face it jones was gonna do nothing against a face hugger let alone an alien <laughs> could you I imagine was, though if the face uh... hugger got jones it would be a completely different film well yeah they've been a sort of cat alien wouldn't it yeah isn't, isn't, I, I, isn't the thing that it, it the alien is whatever it latches onto kind of thing it like it gives yeah. the dna it takes on board the dna of the host i would have loved to have seen a cat xenomorph that would be so cool oh god weird i did say what did i put in here the crew the crew in this film are brilliant though like brett and parker are two of my favorites just because they're always sat moaning about bonuses yeah. on this ship no matter what i'm thinking hang on have brett and parker did they not sign up? Like so, when they went into space, they must have had an agreed rate that they were getting paid. But yeah. then all of a sudden, because they've been woken from cryo sleep before they got back to Earth, there's that thing of I hope we're getting bonuses for this. And you're thinking, I, what, does that yeah. how it works? Is that how space? Is that how space um, exploration know. works? I don't know. It, it 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 seems like a really odd time to start negotiating as well when you're on your way home. Yeah, and they're only talking about it because they've been woken up early so yeah. would they have just got home and decided i want you to pay <laughs> the moan yeah, yeah. I, I i don't understand their logic but they they are great characters because could you imagine from... could you could you imagine though if there's like the iss and there was two <laughs> astronauts on the iss one's about to go for a spacewalk the other one's got to fix like a solar panel and yeah. he's going you know uh, i don't know um chris hatfield you've got to repair that panel chris and chris just goes Am I getting paid for this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> this isn't part of my contract. I want more money. What, exactly. That, but if you don't do this, we'll die. Yeah, but money? Um, <laughs> it's, it's so great. silly. It's, and I, I love that they go from like wanting more money to then 
being very adamant about what their contract says they can and can't do. <laughs> yeah, like throwing their <laughs> toys out the pram and saying, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because it's not in my contract. Not in my contract, <laughs> mate. Don't give a shit. <laughs> do you want to help us hunt the alien? Don't give a shit. Not in my contract. No, no don't want to do that. I'm not paid uh, enough for this. That's um, wicked. I also put a quick note. Um, but I will let you speak, James. I'm sorry. I keep cutting you off. Yeah. I just wanted to put a note that um, John Hurt has a fag on in every scene in this movie. Yes, he does. Yeah. I, John Hurt, though. He's oh, fantastic. He is. He's he's fantastic. And um, I in that same scene where they're arguing over breakfast, um, someone says, will you just listen to the man? And Ash yeah. glares back. It's like that's a really cool little bit of foreshadowing, mm. but it, it's 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 neat the way there's that just that little shot of him glaring back. I like that a lot. Yeah, it is great. I was putting like the pacing in this film is great because it does that. The alien I don't think appears for about an hour. Not yeah. a lot happens in the first forty-five minutes, but what does happen is. You've got, like you said, the establishing the, the ship, establishing the crew. Then we do a little bit of why they're there, what's going on. We've intercepted the signal, blah, 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 blah. And then it's that tension building when yeah. they land on the planet. And, and you don't, you can't really see what Ash is seeing. They're looking through the CCTV on the helmets. And it's that great sense of building dread. Because you go to a film called Alien, you know there's going to be something in it. But you just don't know what it's going to be, where it's going to come from. Is it going to jump out at us? Is it going to be a thing? And I remember thinking it builds that tension so well. And to the point where John Hurt gets snagged by the face hugger, yeah. you kind of think, oh, what? oh, it's jumped out of an egg. But that's not even the alien, is it? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just the first bit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I always like... liked that about this film is that that's not even the big bad thing. That's the thing that impregnates John Hurt, which makes the big bad thing. Yeah, it's it's so cleverly done and built upon and... Um... Uh, it went when they are landing the so so when you go back and rewatch it because i haven't i'll be honest i hadn't watched alien for a good number of years mm. uh so I, I went back to rewatch it for this episode and the stuff that i noticed like during the landing ash hardly moves like, he's not animated at all whereas the others are obviously being affected by the jostling of, of landing the ship and yeah. but ash is almost like just staring coldly dead ahead so um I don't. I don't know whether Ridley had let him know that he was a robot ahead of time, and just not let the others know. Oh, it must so. have just yeah, because they they did a bunch of really weird things on 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 set for this film to to get the right acting out of everybody. But he must have let home know that he was a robot. But yeah, um, yeah the um, yeah, you, you cut to the sort of like. The, the wind sound effects on the planet's surface, and then you cut back to Ash, who's in almost complete silence, apart from little sort of bleeps of the computer. Uh, the only thing that I did put here, and again, sorry, Ridley, nitpicking again, <laughs> the helmet lights only seem to light up people's faces and not where they're looking. Yeah, this I saw this. There's, yeah, there's a bit later on. I was gonna put I put this in my notes as well. There's a bit later on where um, K- um not Kane. I'm sorry, Dallas, the captain. Dallas has yeah. to go into the tunnel to find the alien, the xenomorph, and he's got a flamethrower in one hand and a torch in the other. But the torch is facing his face, so he's just <laughs> lighting his own face up so the camera can see him. But that's not gonna help him look ahead to see where he's going. That's no. the. Key. 
That's weird. Why, what was the, what's the point of that? And then I was thinking, oh, well, it's just filmmaking, you know, whatever, you let it go. But until you really start looking a bit closer, you just don't understand it. I've, um, I've put a note in where we go into the, when we land on the moon, which name I've completely forgotten. I've got it written down somewhere. It's called LV something. Yeah. And um, this is where the signal's coming from. And the signal is coming from a huge spaceship with a big hole in the side of it. And they go into the spaceship and find a giant alien being that's built into some sort of chair apparatus. Yeah. And its chest has been burst open. There's a huge hole in its chest. And I just put in my notes, James, do you think they'll ever give us a satisfying backstory about what that big alien is in that chair, how it got into that chair, and how many how it alien eggs got onto that ship? And mm-hmm. do you think they'll be able to make this trilogy span over a distance of about 15 to 20 years? <laughs> Oh, I don't know, Jake, but I sure can't wait to find out. <laughs> it was really weird because we're going to be talking about the whole franchise, which we will do Prometheus. But I mm. remember thinking, okay, so there's an alien in a chair. There's something's burst out of his chest. But what they don't do in this film is give you anything. So there's not even a xenomorph. Presumably there are xenomorphs on this moon somewhere. Yeah. Because there, there's eggs. Do you know what I mean? The eggs are there. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, without spoiling too much for the next movie, there's got to be a queen mm, laying xenomorph. the eggs. Yeah, but she, but none of these xenomorphs. We don't see a single xenomorph in this film on this planet. So it's almost like we have a little snippet of oh, there's a big spaceship, eggs, face hugger, boom, back to the ship, and obviously that's where the action takes place on the Nostromo. Yeah, but I wondered then. I was kind of thinking. What were the because in aliens, which we'll watch next, I don't I think a lot of those aliens come from facehuggers, don't they? Yeah, so presumably, there might just be one alien, maybe a queen on that planet yeah. somewhere at this point. Yeah, it's obviously at this, at this point, it's not because this is, I guess, you can add mystery to the genre yeah. that it is because they're everything's sort of done in, in a mysterious way, so they don't really explain much and and they're not. I don't know, because at this point it's a singular film, they're not yeah. sort of expected to explain it. It's just like, this happened. Um, that is true. I think when um, I thought about Prometheus going back, and we will watch that in a few weeks' time, that if you watch that film without the context of Alien, does it work okay? But it only it only exists because of Alien, so it's almost like a double yeah. negative, isn't it? Yeah. No, it, it's it's... Again, we're probably going to make a lot of Star Wars comparisons, but if you think Mm. about are the prequels to Star Wars successful films in their own right, actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Or do they just exist to supplement what we already love? Yeah. And you could probably, if you ignore the fact that the original films were made, you could probably watch the prequel trilogy and go, actually, that's a... I'm interested to see where this story is going. You know, it has a good start... It doesn't seem to rely too much on knowledge of the other films because it's setting out the basis of those other films. Whereas I think yeah. Prometheus, a lot of the time, it's like, go on, wait for it, wait for it. We're gonna, we're gonna show you something like a xenomorph, not quite a xenomorph, but promise on yeah. the next film we'll get yeah. there, we'll get to the xenomorphs. You know, it, it's it's always sort of holding holding everything back from you just a little bit, but really yeah. artificially, um, but. On this film, it hasn't got any of that weight on its shoulders. It doesn't have to carry 
any other story apart from the one it's telling you about this this group of people that have just happened across these weird eggs. And yeah. I, I actually think it's all the better for that. Like, it doesn't need to have this sort of, uh, I guess, all these themes and mythology behind it. It's just, it's just a decent film. Yeah, I wonder decent. how long. I wonder how long the eggs sit there for, waiting for a host. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like they've they, sat there a long time. They do seem to just wake up, don't they? When he, uh, it, it's almost yeah, he when he breaks that fog. You know, um, mm. yeah, it's it, 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 it's a cool reveal. Like the the way the face huggers, you see them moving in the egg. I, I love that. Yeah, it is great. Uh, Sigourney's great as well. We just put that in there because I haven't really spoken about her yet. But yeah, she um, she holds this whole film really, doesn't she? Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's a scene where uh, when we come back onto the ship, um, Ash breaks protocol by letting Kane back on the ship with the face hugger on his head. Yeah, um, and there's a great scene where you can tell Ash is up to something. And Ripley sort of appears over his shoulder looking at what he's looking at and he goes all coy. Yeah. Um, and then he says something like, well, he's a very tough little son of a bitch. <laughs> and it's a great scene because Sigourney holds herself really well. And there's such a power in her performance. And she was a young woman then. Yeah. And, you know, most of the male actors in this film were more established than her. They were certainly older than her. Um I don't think she ever lets up that she's not in control. Do you know what I mean? Like she has such a great presence for for an actor of her age. Oh yeah, no, she's just it, like you say. She makes the film. I think mm. um, she's she's the reason there's a a franchise. As yeah. cool as the the like the concept of the xenomorph is, the facehuggers are cool. I think it's because people were invested in Ripley as a character and. And and that's what makes the you know it, it, when you look at films further down the line that tried to do it without Ripley in they're much yeah. less successful they're not as interesting the character's not there um, uh, but it's definitely there because she she's the voice of reason pretty much everything she says if they'd followed it they probably wouldn't have had any problems <laughs> yeah yeah she's the smart one right so um, uh, yeah so and and then you you've got her sort of reason and understanding and her trying to do the right thing playing off against ash and his need and his programming to to bring this thing back alive because he's he's aware of it the whole time he knows what it yeah. is yeah we don't find that out until much later in the film but yeah ash just knows why they've been woken up yeah and ash has got the mission to protect the alien specimen at all costs right that's his mission yeah which is why he overrides ripley with the airlock bit um, there's a. I just love that that bit where she sneaks up behind Ash to look at the face hugger is the same. They do it the other way around when she's talking to Mother in the cockpit. Yeah. And Ash turns up behind her on her left side, and it's like, oh, it's a really nice little mirror shot yes. that works really well. And that's when he reveals himself as sinister. Uh, well, really sinister. Yeah. Um, no, it's but- great. Yeah, the infirmary bit, we see the face hugger for the first time. It's always quite disconcerting. And I don't know whether that's because of the organic nature of the face hugger. I think if the face hugger looked more alien, would we be as afraid of it? But I think because it looks quite plausibly organic, do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it makes it a bit more sinister and scary. Yeah, it's. It's got it, knuckles. It's got knuckles. It, it looks. It, it just feels <clears throat> creepy. 
It's mm. it's really creepy. Uh, although, again, apologies, Ridley. Uh, don't fully understand its sort of modus operandi because when mm-hmm. they try and cut it off, it starts strangling its host. Yeah. But surely if it did strangle its host, the, the xenomorph couldn't grow. Yeah, maybe. So I don't, I don't fully understand. Like, if the host is dead, surely that kills off its child. I, I don't get that bit, but it is really creepy. And obviously, I guess it's reliant on uh, the people trying to cut it off having feelings and emotions towards the person that they're trying to save. So maybe that that explains it. But yeah, it's it's a a really sort of it's not humanoid, but it's got. Like recognizable, yeah, organic. Like, yeah, like knuckles, like you say, it's recognizable as a thing that could l- exist. Um, I mean, yeah, most they... ironically, it's based on the Geiger artwork, and when they start dissecting the face hugger, um, it's clearly very vaginal in the way yes. it looks uh, yes. without being crass. Um, and there's that thing of going, oh, okay, so it's got the kind of female birth organ as its face. And its job is to do kind of what the penis does in the human organism. And then it kind of gives you a baby. Like, it's all very weird and nasty and creepy. But it's ultimately just about life and birth, isn't it? It's about a life cycle. Its life cycle is it starts in an egg. It gets a host. It gives the host an embryo. The host's warm body breeds the embryo. The embryo breaks outside the host's body and climbs out. Yeah. Uh, I think it's based on a wasp. Right, uh, right. There's a type of wasp in Africa, I think. I'll double-check my notes on that. But it, um, it, it basically lays its eggs in the heads of other insects. So not the chests... But it kind of goes on to other creatures, um, stabs the creature, paralyzes it, impregnates it with an egg, and then flies off. And that wasp's egg grows in the other insect. And in some cases, it can actually change the insect's behavior until it eventually wiggles out and climbs out as a little larvae. Just climbs out of the host's head and kills it and eats through its brain. It's all very nasty. Very. But you can see where they got the influence from. And and Mm -hmm. it's the... it's the the, the post impregnation scene where yeah. they, they they get a call, don't they? And they they go down and they look at Kane and he looks normal, um, and and they have a meal together to yeah. kind of get back on track. They're going home, and the whole time they're eating the meal, you keep cutting back to Ash staring at Kane. Yeah, it and is I, really good. I isn't love it? that. <laughs> I love that scene. That that I I've, I keep calling it the last meal scene because. It's kind of what it is for Kane, um, and it's. I think it's it's one of those scenes that's gone down in history. I think um, there's, there's a, a bit of a myth about it being done in one take. Uh, apparently, it was done in two. Oh, okay, uh, but because um, the um, they, they actually used both takes though, because apparently the first take the uh, chest buster didn't bust through the chest. <laughs> So the, the bits Brilliant. where the bits where you see it sort of popping up and it's just moving his his shirt, uh, yeah. he's wearing the, like that tank top thing. Apparently, that's from the first take that didn't go very well. Oh, because yeah, it's very it's quickly cut, isn't it? Um, yeah. To talk I, about that scene, I mean, it is arguably one of not only the most iconic horror sci-fi scenes, but it is ultimately one of the most iconic scenes in motion picture history. 
Yeah. Which is mad, isn't it? Like, what a mad thing to have as an accolade. It's, yeah. I think, because it's so horrific, it comes from, like you said, we're lured into a sense of um, of of, um, of comfort because of the fact that oh, Kane's fine, Facehog is dead, um, yeah. we're on our way, film's over, guys, no aliens, sorry. And then he starts to cough, he starts coughing, and you're like, oh, you yeah. suddenly make a joke about the food being shit. And then John Hurt does that amazing performance where he just wriggles around on the table for a bit. And you know something's coming, but you're just not entirely sure what it is. And yeah. that, for me, is a proper... It's probably the only time in a, when I was a child, I remember watching it when I was too little. I shouldn't have watched it. But I remember watching <laughs> it through through the fingertips of my hands because I didn't want to see it come out because I didn't want to see the gory bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it has that body horror gore, but it's also just fucking terrifying because it's so it really well acted. Is. And the response, because apparently they didn't know how much stuff was going to happen when it happened. No. So the reaction of all of the sort of bloody corn syrup being spluttered out onto all of the actors' faces, apparently all their reactions are pretty genuine. Yes. Yeah, so that bit is genuine because obviously the first take, it didn't, nothing much happened. Yeah. So they, they, when they came around to do the second take and it all goes off, that, <laughs> all those reactions are, are, are what you'd expect yeah. if you had like corn syrup thrown all over you yeah. and that thing coming out of John Hurt's body. It, it's, it, it's, oh, it's a masterpiece it's it's brilliantly done and then the little and... thing just kind of growls at them and runs off across the table looks a bit shit when it when the prosthetic alien runs off the <laughs> table um if anything i would have no honestly i think if i was if i was good to go and give ridley again we're going to criticize ridley again yeah i would have just cut that he didn't need to see it run off the table no no um, i think that's mm. like you say they they, they were really good for the majority of the film, of not showing the full alien. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that increased the horror aspect. Of course, like Jaws. You, like Jaws. You never really see it in, in full because you realise in the, like, in Jaws's case, in the sequels, where they do try and show the full shark, <laughs> it looks horrible. Yeah. Um, but in, in this film, they just keep it to the like the bare minimum and it is grotesque and it's scary and it's got all the, the the body horror features like the the little mouth inside the mouth yeah it's, it's weird uh, isn't it it's yeah it's it's really really strange uh there's no eyes as well which i, I really like the, the the xenomorph doesn't have any eyes it kind of there's has a big wasp to look at eye doesn't it like you know like yeah. insects have got those ball eyes that can look in so many different directions the xenomorph's head is kind of a big eye isn't it yeah it's it's so good it's such a good alien like that there aren't many films that make aliens that well. Yeah. You know, you, it's really just, for me anyway, it's just Alien and Predator are, are the, the main sort of really good aliens. Everything yeah. else just looks like some form of human. Yeah. And they, they, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. It's like the first alien in an alien film that looks unlike anything else. And it doesn't look human. If anything, when you look at a xenomorph in its full... Um, it's full glory, as it were. It, it looks yeah. almost mechanical. It looks kind of half yeah. mechanical, half organic. And there's certain weirdness to that that we can't understand. Again, because we're human, we understand yeah. organic and we understand mechanical. And we understand that those two things are very different. Whereas for the xenomorph, that idea that it's got these razor sharp backbones, it's got sort of tubes on its neck that look mechanical, but it's real. Um, 
it's really odd and it's really disconcerting. And all of that, again, yeah. I think that comes from Geiger and those amazing yeah. artwork, uh, that amazing artwork that he provided for the film. But um, yeah, you're right. It's that insect, mechanical, humanoid, terrifying thing that unlike anything else we've ever seen. Uh, and it just works really well. <laughs> yeah. And as does, soon as you it, see it's, its outline, you know it's the alien from Alien. You know what I mean? That's great as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it, it defined itself. It, it was it, it's fantastic, and I think because they, especially for the second film, they kept so true to that design. Yeah, um, it, it really builds on that. You know, you, you recognize it as a a. It's the reason Jaws is scary because everyone's seen sharks. Yeah. You know, everyone's seen a picture of a shark and they know the outline of the fin and things like that. Alien is the same for me. It's it, everyone knows that. You know, it, it's got a long tail and it's kind of got that weird shaped head it's it's got everything there that makes it that really definable enemy yeah i think that's great um it's one hour five minutes into the movie that we actually see the xenomorph in its full form uh it kills brett doesn't kill jones jones just kind of watches it happen and then i put in my notes my, the bit in the air shaft with Dallas trying to shut the air shaft and box the xenomorph off and kill it, that is my favourite bit in the whole film. Maybe, I don't know what we'll say once we get through the others, I think it's my favourite bit in the whole franchise. Yes. Because it's terrifying I, and claustrophobic it and it's kind of well shot and then you've got... Um, uh, you've got the other actress whose name I can never remember. She's screaming, run, Dallas, turn around, Dallas. Dallas is behind you. And then you can just hear the beeping getting louder from the from the, um, from the the tracker. Uh, it's yeah. all there. Like, it's just this just perfect suspense scene where even without visuals, you could listen to that audio, and it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> I think I think it's probably more terrifying if you don't have the visuals. Yeah. like Because I'm... I agree with you. It's one of my favourite scenes in the film, up until. <laughs> what are you going to say? I know what you're going to say. <laughs> up until the alien seems to appear and just do jazz hands. <laughs> <laughs> the alien kind of appears and goes, "Hello," and it looks like it's going to hug him. Um, uh, I I'm going to tell the guys on this podcast. I sent James a video last night. Was it last night? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Um, and this is a video from I think it's Screen Rant who do the everything wrong with videos on YouTube. Yeah. They're very big on YouTube. You know, I'm going to give them a, a, a you know, a two pence worth because they are brilliant. Um, Definitely. And at the end of their videos, they always do like, like, I don't know, like sarcastic outtakes, don't they, from films? Yeah. And, and the, <laughs> the one that they do at the end where the alien disappears and it goes, come here, cocksucker. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> they just dump that over the top of the alien and it just ruined me. I could not stop laughing at that all night. Even my wife is like, what's wrong with you? Why are you laughing at that? Like, it's just funny. It's stupid. It's so stupid. It's great. Um, it's great. But he does. He goes in for a hug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's backtrack. That scene is still my favourite and it is still scary. Yeah. Even with oh, Jazz Hands, Alien Boy. It is. It's, it's. It's. a great scene. Um, they and they, they. Again, they sort of. They. They. They drop the sound out. Like you say, it's yeah. just the beeping you hear and yeah. the screaming and yeah. the. It just makes it feel more real. 
yeah. it's almost because I guess we're trained as humans when we're watching something on screen that if there's no background music, it's kind of a documentary. Yeah, I, I put I know that in my notes. Yeah, it feels like a documentary style. Yeah. Um, obviously now documentaries are getting really cinematic and you've got David mm-hmm. Attenborough with like Hans Zimmer and in the background and stuff like that. But this is more like those traditional sort of uh, fly on the wall style documentaries mm-hmm. where it, it, you're not meant to feel like you're intruding on something. You're part of that thing. And that's what that that's why this has that kind of unnerving effect, because you, you feel like you're there. Yeah. Um, which is really, really cool and I, I i in this section i in my notes have put things like the technology of the time prevented a full shot of the xenomorph standing up say or you know being there as a yeah. thing that you could interact with and that makes it much scarier i agree um I, one of my favorite i'm not a massive horror film fan i, I prefer thrillers and stuff like that but one of my favorite mm. horror films because it's got a similar kind of approach, is Dog Soldiers. Oh, yeah, it's great. And again, it was really low budget, so they couldn't show the full werewolf. Yeah. And it makes it creepier for that, because when they do show the full werewolf, it's kind of like this elongated man in a suit. It's it's really, really cool. Um, So this this has a similar theme to it, um, and it sort of that used future idea as well where uh it's commonplace that technology takes over yeah and technology makes decisions and in in this film it's mother making these decisions and mother's giving out the instructions but mother's giving out different instructions to the humans to the ones it's giving ash yeah and it's 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 this idea that uh mother's playing them off one another yeah, partly to see what the Xenomorph's capable of, partly to see if Ash is capable of completing his mission. Yeah. <clears throat> um, or, or can the humans complete their mission? It, it's, it, a mother seems to be this uh, all-knowing device, mm-hmm. but at the same time, just watching things unfold. I really, I really like that, because it's not... Uh, Skynet has a... In, in the Terminator franchise, Skynet has a mission... Yeah, that it want it wants to survive. It wants same to same as Hal in two thousand and one as well. I suppose it harks back to that a little bit. Yeah, but Mother's just there for the ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, that's what I really like. In this, the Mother's just enjoying what's going on. It doesn't seem to have an opinion on where it wants the outcome to be. Mother's just there and playing the the main characters off one another, which I really like. But it's that that concept that that over reliance on technology like they have to use the uh, they have to use mother to look after the ship while they're in cryosleep they can't steer it themselves yeah um and then they have to basically do what mother says um when they wake up uh, i've also written that uh, meowing to get the cat's attention actually works <laughs> what does it work in Which... real life or it, you mean just in the context of the film in the concept of the film, if you meow to a cat, because apparently uh, cats only meow at us because it, it gets our attention. That's funny. Cats don't meow at each other. Oh. So it's kind of weird that meowing at the cat in this film actually gets its attention. If you meow at a real cat, they, they'll either ignore you, which is true most cat most times, <laughs> or they, they'll just look kind of bemused at you, but they won't come towards you. It's not like That sounds about right. You, 
you're not really speaking their language. Yeah. You're just doing you're doing the thing <laughs> that they do to you, and it sort of takes them aback a bit. That's funny. Uh, so yeah, I don't fully understand why why meowing at Jones works, but but it does, and it, it's cool that they go back and rescue Jones. They do. Go, Jones survives. Jones survives, um, which is good. I like the Ash Android bit, especially when they start bashing his head in and he starts sort of leaking this sort of creamy white fluid from his head. And it's all yeah. a bit strange. It's it's odd because it's the first... I remember thinking when I was younger when I watched it, oh, that must be like synthetic blood. It must be like something that they use to keep him mushy because obviously humans are mushy. We're not hard like robots. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, that kind of all makes sense. And he's got like little synthetic organs in his body. Then you see like little balls of bits coming out of him like a human, but they're all yeah. a white off color and his arteries are like cables and connected. So it, it felt organic, even though I knew he wasn't real and it wasn't genuine. Do you know what I mean? Because it's not, it's not blood yeah. and guts, but it's sort of robot blood and guts, um, yeah. which works really well in this film. And then when you add that to the franchise as a trope, Whenever we see that white fluid leaking out of a out of a character, you're like, oh, he's because he's a, he's a fake, he's a he's a fake boy. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a fake boy. He's a fake boy. And that he's a Pinocchio. Yeah, and that works all the way through this franchise, and it, they keep coming back to it. They come back to it in the sequels with Bishop. Yeah. They come back to it with Fastbender's character David in the uh, more modern ones. And it, oh yeah, it just works. It's clever, and it just sets something up. And I imagine it was probably like a two-minute conversation of, well, is he going to have blood? I don't know. Give him some white liquid, and it'll make it look really weird, and people won't know what it is, and then we'll show that he's not real. And everyone goes, oh yeah, fine, tick. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it becomes it, really iconic. In, in your, uh, I, I, I won't mm. spoil any potential five facts you have. But did you come across what? the materials were that they used to make that no so if you know that research. if you know that yeah. you can tell me now or you can save it till the end I, i'll tell you now because it's, okay. it's really cool it, it was a, a little interview with ian home that i read yeah and apparently the the material in, inside ash <laughs> was made up of cheap caviar and onion rings <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> yeah caviar's not white it's black isn't it oh yeah but it was like milk cheap caviar uh. and onion rings Oh, just gross. Oh, that is horrible. It must have smelt foul. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, that certainly makes the film scarier. What is yeah. this stuff? Is it alien? What is it? Is it? Is it goo? Is it blood? Well, I tell you what, it is. It's milk, caviar, and onion rings. <laughs> there's, there's our episode title. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, oh my God. Gross. Um, right. I, I completely we've derailed again. Uh, I um, like when they put, I, I like it when she props Ash's head up and we get that crap cut from Ian Holmes' <laughs> fake head to Ian Holmes' real head, which, again, you could have, there's a few different ways, Ridley, you could have done that. I mean, for me, I would have, I would have had a character walk in front of Ash. That seems yeah. to be the best way of doing it. When directors are cutting what looks like a continuous scene of one take and they have to put a cut somewhere, yeah. you just drop behind a pillar or you have a character walk in front of the camera and that gives you a natural place to cut where then you can carry on the, sh the shot and it looks seamless. So you could have just had 
Ripley walk around Ash, and then that would have given him a cut between fake Ash yeah. and real Ash. I, I, you know, it's one of those things. Whatever, it's the 1970s. We can we can forgive him. Uh, nowadays, Absolutely. all of that would have been done with CGI anyway. So the fact yeah. that it's been done for real, it does add to the aesthetic of the scene, and it makes it. I think it makes it more cool. Yeah, it does. It it, it dates the film, but in a good way. Like you can see what they were able to achieve with the technology they had. So mm-hmm. that's good. Um, yeah, that is, I love. I love the conversation they have at that point because, it, again, he had a mission, but now his mission is is done for because he can't do anything about it. Yeah. So, he's again, he's just along for the ride now. He's like, good luck, you know. <laughs> see if you survive. You know, it, it's it. He doesn't. There's not malice there because he wasn't really against the humans on board. He was just having to deal with the fact that they were there because they would want to survive, yeah. but he knew that they probably couldn't uh, for his mission to, to work out. So yeah. it, it was he's it, just really robotic and pragmatic and just what you'd expect from an android. It's great. It is great, isn't it? Um, the next few scenes, obviously, when we get to the ending where um, Parker dies... And they yeah. get killed by the alien. And then Ripley's forced to set the self-destruct sequence up on the ship. Then she has to go back for Jones. And the alien is sort of surveying Jones through the glass box that he's in. Um, yeah. And then we blow the ship up. And Ripley, there's that great sequence where, and I said, I've put it in my notes, I just love when she sets up the self-destruct sequence. Uh, there's all those strobe lights everywhere. You see Ripley's sort of sweaty face, and it's yeah. so iconic. And she's running around the ship, um, and it's that like that countdown monotone female voice saying it's going to blow up in so and so, you know, ten, nine, eight, and it does all that. And you're like, oh, it works really well to build that tension of get out quick, get out the ship quick, quick, quick. Um, And then she gets into the escape pod. And when it blows up, that's that really iconic uh, shot that's often used in promotional material. I think it was used um, for the trailer. It's also used whenever you see a reference to the DVD or the Blu-ray release of the Alien franchise. It's always a shot of Ripley with that bright white light of the explosion. And her and the camera sort of vibrates and shakes. And she's like recoiling because the light is so bright, it's burning her face. And yeah, that is such a cool shot. Like it just looks so iconic. Um, it does, and it's so iconic that they use it like three times in the same sequence. So like it blows up once, then it blows up twice, then it blows up a third time, and then it's definitely yeah. blown up. Just so that we all have no, um, you know, no preconception that the alien's not dead. It's definitely dead. The ship is gone. We yeah. survived, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was this the first... But, I wanted to ask you, because I don't know if you knew this or not. Was this one of the first films that did that? Because that seems like a very, very classic sort of um, typical horror movie trope where we dispose of the bad guy, but, oh, wait, it was the, the other bad guy from the other side. Or, oh, wait, it was his mum. Oh, wait, he's still alive. Do you know what I mean? They do that yeah. a lot in horror but I wondered if that had come from this or if it was earlier than this. I think it's probably earlier than this, but mm. this is a really successful way of doing it. Yeah. Because it just that that sudden realisation that actually the alien's just there. You know, yeah. It's it's just, just about managed to get on the ship at the same time as Ripley did. And it 
it hasn't got itself in a good position. You know, it's not like it's it's definitely not going to you, you don't feel like it's going to win yet at that point, but you feel like the odds are even again. Yeah. Like you you you've you've you're led to believe you've beaten the odds and you've survived. But then all of a sudden, that, all those hopes are dashed because, yeah, that thing that you can't shoot because it bleeds acid is right there in your escape pod. There isn't, like, an escape pod from the escape pod. Yeah, you've got no other. <laughs> you've got no yeah. other way out. You're stuck in this escape pod with this thing that's definitely going to eat you. Uh, I, I love that. I, I think it's such a good sort of, like, surprise at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, and it, it it removes any sense of security that you had. Do you remember what I mean, though, by that fact that in every horror film ever since that day, you kind yeah. of think, oh, the chainsaw guy's dead. Oh, wait, he's in the back of the car. Or, I don't know, yeah. like, Scream did it. Um, I guess, like, in everything, you always think it's done, and then, behind you. <laughs> yeah. And they, they always go back to that in horror, don't they? They always it's use like that, that, that trope. jump scare thing of, yeah. uh, at the end, you, you, you've... You're we're safe, safe but we're not, not really safe. safe. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we have that great scene where Ripley's trying to quietly get the alien into the airlock. To, to What is it? She's basically going to blow the airlock open to suck the alien out of the ship. Yeah. Um, and that works, but he still grabs onto the ship, so he's still there. So she has to then press the uh, booster button to dispose of him. There's a really cool yeah. shot, actually. When the, Did you notice when the booster goes off, it's kind of a bright neon light to represent, like, energy, fire. But instead of yeah. it being flame, they use water. They fire water at the camera. So it looks ah. like the camera's being drenched with, like, I don't know, plasma or space energy. Oh, that's clever. <laughs> but it's just, yeah. it's just water and light being blown at the camera at high pressure. And the alien gets sort of blown off with the high-pressure water. And then you see it after it kind of subsides, just the droplets of water in slow-mo going off into, anyway, presumably into space, but dropping towards the camera. Yeah, uh, it looks really good. It looks so iconic because you always imagine when a when a rocket fires its booster in space, it's going to leave this sort of trail like an aircraft does. Yeah, so I really like that. I got a good kick it's out. It's cleverly of that. done. Yeah, it's cleverly. You know, it's working on these <coughs> these limitations that they have because mm. they can't do it in CGI. It doesn't exist yet. No. No, and I guess uh, like in all the other science fiction films, it was always like a, a white light boost. Uh, in yeah. Star Wars, you've always got a little bit of like a rev of the engine in space, and then you'd hear a blast from the Millennium Falcon, and you'd always get a little bit of blue light coming out the back of the Falcon, wouldn't you, when it blasted yeah. off? But it didn't really do anything else. There was nothing organic about it, really. Um, yeah. And I like that yeah, they, they introduced that a little bit in this film and go, oh, look, it's like an organic engine in space that works. Yeah, it's... it's cleverly done a good workaround and then you have like this quietness after the you know it's like mm. the quietness after the storm and there's a really it's probably the most amount of music you hear in the entire film happens at the end yeah. where it's sort of peaceful she's survived she's yeah. escaped ripley's the, okay the final score in the credits is quite um it's quite upbeat actually isn't it it's quite yeah nice and Twinkly, like, ah, oh, happy yeah. ending, which you don't normally get in these kind of films. No. I don't no, think we certainly it... don't get that after this, because in all the other movies, I remember them being quite nasty at the end. Do you know what I mean? They always have a bit of yeah. an overarching, scary sense of dread at the end. 
Yeah, this this film <coughs> benefits from it being the first and 100%. being allowed to have just a a nice arc, a completion because there wasn't an you know, they didn't anticipate I don't think making any sequels. No. Cuz much like with A New Hope, there was no expectation there'd be another film afterwards yeah. when they were making it. It's just this is, you know, Alien. We we we're definitely doing a an Alien film uh, and it's a film <laughs> not yeah, yeah. not a, not a massive franchise so yeah I, I like that i think it's it has incredible moments in it and I, i'm actually quite pleased we've not really done a like a plot by plot point summary of it because hopefully if no one if, if there are people out there that haven't seen it mm. they'll go back and there's a there's a million things we could have talked about yeah definitely uh, but hopefully people experience those things because it does make the, the the Nostromo feel like a very real lived-in space, uh, with and the characters feel legitimately like you know rig workers that could be in space. Yeah. You know, everything feels like like, <coughs> it like a documentary up until the point everything hits the fan, mm. and you have a, a weird alien there. So. No, it's a great film, so I'm I'm hopeful people will listen to this and go, that sounds good if if they've not watched it, and they'll yeah they'll definitely watch it. I think it's one of those films where, like we said earlier, it it's so old and classic, and everyone's aware of its lineage, its lore, but but have they watched it with this with you know with the eyes that we've watched it with? You watch it in retrospect, and you think, God, it really is that good. But if you watch yeah. it. Um, as a person that's not really into films, has certainly not seen any of the others, and is aware of a little bit of the lore of Alien, watch it and don't don't go in with any expectation. But I guarantee there'll be something you'll enjoy about it, and I think that's what it really does well. It is it is terrifying. It's fresh. It's even liberating in the fact that it's got a lead female actor as opposed to a lead male character. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it felt ahead of its time then. And it still does. It still feels ahead of its time. Um, yeah. And I like that after everything that's happened, everything that's come out since Alien, um, none of the sequels, I mean, I, arguably is the second one, there's a different genre, the second one. Mm. The second one is beloved for different reasons. I love it as well. But yeah, is it a better quality film than the first one? And does it beat the first one for what it is? Probably not. And the reason no. the second one is good, because, because the second one is a different type of film. It doesn't try yeah. to replicate the second one at all, the first one at all. Uh, and I think yeah. that that is a really lovely thing that Hollywood has kind of lost. Me and you always say this now, don't we? Like, all that the remakes do now is try to emulate that which the first one had, which at the time when it came out was almost lightning in a bottle and it was never really going to be replicated. So what you should yeah. do is either don't do a sequel at all or a reboot, or if you are going to do a reboot or a sequel, why don't you add something to the law and do something different that gives you a sense of what the first one was good at, but also don't try to redo what's already been done. Um, yeah. And Hollywood it's often forget that, I think. I think they do because if you look, we're making the Star Wars comparison again here. Yeah. But the this the, the sequel trilogy. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to try and replicate the original films, which let's be honest, that's what the sequel trilogy did. Yeah. The core thing that made those original films so enjoyable for me, and I think for a lot of people, is the fact that you had such 
charismatic cast. You, you know, you had your Mark Hamill, you, you had your Carrie Fisher, you had your Harrison Ford. If you're going to try and replicate that set of films, don't even start filming until you've found a group of people that have that much charisma on yeah. screen. and chemistry. And chemistry, yeah, because it, it worked because of the three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, 100% and agree. I think, you know, the, the new films have got incredible CGI, they've got amazing set pieces. Uh, the story is, is limited, and because it's trying too hard to be something that's already existed, but also the characters are limited because they don't stand up to the originals mm-hmm. in a, in any way. And some of that is like rose-tinted spectacles, I'm sure. But yeah. I think the way that the Alien franchise progressed uh, is because it had a lot of reverence for this first film. Yeah, It respected what the first film did and didn't really try and tread on its toes much. Mm-hmm. You know, each film is its own kind of thing uh, to, you know, greater or lesser success but each film is its own thing it doesn't really try and retread too much of the old ground we will be talking about later in this franchise about alien um i can't can't remember i'm getting all my words muddled up we're going to be talking about prometheus and alien covenant which is its sequel and those films again this it goes back to exactly what we were just talking about is that they tried to emulate and replicate the success of the original alien by also trying to insert a new lineage or a new law that nobody really gave a shit about. Um, yeah. And then to its discredit, it didn't have the characters that the original had. So therefore, no. it kind of doesn't doesn't do anything. It falls flat. And it ends up being like a tribute to itself. Um, yes. And these were directed by Ridley Scott. And we're going to go back and talk about these in a few weeks. But they, they do that thing of going... We love this. What I really want to do is this again with a different cast and make it better than Alien. But I'm aware yeah. that I'm probably going to fail. And that is a yeah. problem. If you make a film where you go, I want to make this version of this film with a new cast for a new audience in a new time with new special effects. But I'm also aware that I'm probably not going to be able to beat the one I made in 1979. Then don't do it. <laughs> Just stop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, stop now. Um, it's okay. Yeah, this is what um this is what uh what's his name said, didn't he? Um God, what's his name? Robert Zemeckis, who made Back to the Future, had said basically that he's never going to sell the rights. He's never going to rel- relinquish the rights to Back to the Future to anybody else. Um yeah. because he made a trilogy that he was happy with, and if anyone tacks on a fourth one onto the end of the western Back to the Future 3, it'll only yeah. do a discredit to the originals. Uh, it can never ever be better than the trilogy or it can never really tack on unless it's rebooted so you either reboot it and make a shit version or you tack it on in which case everyone's gonna go "Eh, it wasn't as good as the original so yeah that is a big it's a lose-lose isn't it it is yeah it is uh, totally it's a lose-lose situation every time um should we do five facts (laughs) let's do five facts you've got the jingle Right, fact number one. 
Um, I did put this in earlier, so I'm going to have to make a better one up. My original fact was that this wouldn't have been made without Star Wars, so we already did that. Um, this had a working title, James, when it came out, and Ooh. it wasn't Alien. Okay. The original working title for this film was Star Beast. <laughs> Star Beast. Oh, dear. Yeah, I kept thinking of Starburst when I heard this. <laughs> I couldn't get past Fruity Chews. Yeah, Star Beast. Yeah, it's not, not quite as cool as Alien. No, but you can understand the reference, right? That everyone, oh, yeah. was, everyone was making films with Star in it. Star Beast, well, it, Star Journey, sense, Star Battle. Yeah. Stargate. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if that you're, you're trying to tap into that, uh, that popularity. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, fact number two, surrealist painter H.R. Geiger did most of the artwork for this movie, which became the inspiration for everything in the Alien universe, which I think we've already talked about. Um, Geiger was a German artist, a contemporary artist. Yeah. All you have to do is go into Google, tap in a quick Google search for HR Geiger. You will see some horrific things. <laughs> but what you'll also see is the platform for which Alien is inspired. So you see everything that from the spaceships to the xenomorph and the uh the eggs and the and the chestburster, the the space jockey, which is the yeah. name of the alien thing in the big spaceship at the beginning. It all comes from Geiger's artwork and it all is very very um it's very obviously inspired by it, and they go on to use that that type of um, that look, as it were, that aesthetic, all the way through the franchise, even with Alien versus Predator as well. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, it, it, it's it's iconic, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of organic mechanic, which is just a weird thing to think of. Yeah. Fact number three: Ripley was originally written as a male character, uh, but Ridley oh, Scott okay. changed this when they started shooting the film. I'm glad he did. I think it yeah. works better this way. <clears throat> I also think, why not? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. How yeah, many films it's... do we have? Uh, male-led superhero films, male-led fantasy films, male-led sci-fi films. It it does seem like, like you said earlier, there is no Alien franchise without Ellen Ripley. Uh, Coercely, no. there is no franchise without Sigourney. So she yeah. cemented herself into this universe as this character and the thing i think i love most about ripley is that she's a get the job done no bullshit kind of person and that yes. is not something that hollywood like to um have attached to female characters most female characters if they are of no bullshit um are either fighting a male patriarch character um mm. they've either been described as having a stick up their ass or they're lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's not very often that they do it in Hollywood where they go, she's just a normal woman. She does normal things. She wears, she, you know, she doesn't bothered about walking around in her little wife, you know, her little knickers and uh, vest. <laughs> she does at the end. She's yeah. got real problems to solve and she kicks ass. She doesn't need yeah. to be overly sexualized and she doesn't need to pander to a male, um, uh, you know, side character. It's not about I, that. I think that's why this is, uh, I mean, this is something that I think we could talk endlessly about mm. with new films, but this is something in this film where you hit the nail on the head when you said she's a, you know, she's just a straightforward person. Mm. And it's her, her gender almost doesn't come into it. Of course it doesn't. It, it's amazing that it's a, it's a great role for a female lead and that's fantastic. But that's fantastic from like a, 
I guess, a, like a representation, uh, audience, viewership kind of yeah. point of view, it doesn't play into the story. I think yeah. that's where things are different now, where we're, we're in a, a point in time where perhaps the representation side of things now falls into the story and yeah. becomes it becomes an element of the story rather than it being... It, it shouldn't be unusual that there's a female lead, but if you make a big deal about the lead being female, it then becomes unusual, even though it happens more often absolutely. than it did. Yeah, and it, 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 So I think it's almost counterproductive the way female leads are written these days. Uh, and there's a, loads of arguments here that, that you know there weren't enough female leads before. Absolutely on board with that, agree with that. But the female leads that there were were better written, I think, than some of the modern equivalents. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you listen to Sigourney, Sigourney says in many interviews, um, if you look at Hollywood in that time, there wasn't many female characters like Ripley because when a female character did something assertive or whenever a female character asserted her dominance, whether it be like when she shouts at Parker, you remember where she goes like, shut up, Parker, I'm talking. Like, there wasn't many films at the time where female leads were able to do something. They'd then have to fall back on the male character or once they'd done something heroic, they'd have a little cry. Um, yeah. And she made this point, um, did did Sigourney, and I remember thinking, God, yeah, that's so true of the time. If you go back and watch any film where, like, a female character takes another character's life or has to do something really uh, hard, she'll have a little lay down and cry afterwards just to make sure yeah. that we all know she's still a little woman. And I remember, th- yeah. yeah, and it's like, what? that's so weird, isn't it? That that's how we've been conditioned to, to film it's, things. And, and that doesn't so happen in any of the alien films. You know, Sigourney never lays down for a little cry or sits back and thinks, I can't do this, I need to get a man in. It's always, yeah. she just sorts it out because she's a strong she's character. Pragmatic. She's, she's got, pragmatic. she's got the, yeah, she's got the answers or she'll get yeah. the answers. So it, it, it is cool. No, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that we're covering this franchise because it's such a nice contrast to it some is. more modern films. Yeah, I think we, me and my wife were talking about it and we've done Jurassic Park before, but do you remember in Jurassic Park you had Laura Dern's character who was in her own right, she was a botanist, she was a, she was an archaeologist. Yeah. Um, she has lots of roles to play in the film. There's even a joke in the film where she has to go to like a bunker and reset the fuse breakers. And um, and and Richard Attenborough's character says, "I should go really because I'm a um, you know, and you're um, a... and and <laughs> that is like heavily joked upon in the movie, as if to say, yeah. don't be pathetic." And then we get to like Jurassic World, which is a modern version of Jurassic Park, in which we have yeah. a CEO played by a female lead, Bryce Dallas Howard, and she's like a stone yeah. cold bitch. Uh, she wears uh, high heels. No one really likes her. And she runs away yeah. from a T-Rex in high heels. And then I remember my, my wife just watching it going, what are they doing? Why would they do this? <laughs> this does not how women react. Just because yeah. she's a CEO and she's female, she doesn't have to have a bob cut of a Saatchi bag and be a bitch. That's no. not, that doesn't mean what that means. Do you know what I mean? And I remember thinking it's, it's written so poorly for that woman, for that person, for Bryce Dallas yeah. Howard. It doesn't work. It's, that's not real. That's the fantasy of what a female CEO may be like. It's not, that's not the truth. 
Um, yeah. And I hated it. I hate things like that where we have to kind of make her... We have to either make her pathetic and have a little cry or we have to make her somewhat reliant on the tough male character at some point. Um, yeah. But God, just... yeah, we could literally... I mean, honestly, we could talk about this. I could talk about this with you all day. Like, yeah. it really gets my back up. But um, yeah, <laughs> fact number four. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get there. We will get there today, I promise. Um, yeah. Ash wasn't in the original version of the script um, and he wasn't a robot and there was a science officer character written. Ash was then shoehorned in apparently by the studio. They wanted an idea that they could have this uh, android member of the crew on the ship. Okay. Um, I've, I've got it written down here. Actually, let me read it to you. Um, the secretly, the secret android member of the crew was played by Ian Holm. He did not appear in O'Bannon's original script. He was invented by the producers while Shusser loved the addition, O'Bannon was less enthusiastic. The writer O'Bannon ah. complained in the 2003 DVD commentary, and I quote, If he wasn't in the film, what difference does it make? I mean, who the hell gives a rat's ass? Somebody's a robot, so what? <laughs> <laughs> That's someone who's taking their bat and ball yeah, home, isn't it's it? It's good, like, isn't it? <laughs> I love that. So I, I remember that. thinking That's... to myself, does Ash being a robot add anything to the plot? And I guess he doesn't, but... It... Not, not really. I mean, he could just be, uh, you know, a science officer who's been given a slightly different mission yeah i guess it adds to the creepy factor doesn't it that he's been able to lie to the rest of the crew because they they've been on a whole mission with him yeah maybe i not realized yeah and um and not realized so yeah i guess it doesn't affect the plot greatly but it's a nice addition it works hmm I guess Ian Holmes Ash is the company man, isn't he? In the yeah, he's been put on that ship for a reason, and then the reason we find out is really sinister, and it's about trying to get the alien specimen back to Earth for for experimentation. Don't they want to use it in weaponry later on in the um, the franchise? Yeah. I think they want to use it as a biological weapon. Um, we'll talk about that in the next episode, though I'm sure. <laughs> um, and then the last fact was uh, the alien xenomorph when he was full grown. Yeah. You see him in the suit. Uh, it was played by a six foot ten a Nigerian student whose name was Balaji Badajo. Um, yeah. He doesn't get a lot, and I haven't really been able to find much out about him. But apparently, yeah, he was hired by Ridley because uh, he's so I, massive. I have some, I have some facts. How oh, do you, this gentlemen? Because I was intrigued. Yeah, Balaji. This is his only acting credit. Yes, I couldn't find anything so, else about him apart from this I, being his only acting credit. I think I know why it's his only acting credit. <laughs> oh, is this so, going to be bad? This is pretty bad. Not oh, no. terrible, but Sir Ridley Scott made sure that Balaji did not take tea or lunch breaks with the rest of the cast, so their fear of the alien would be more genuine. Right. And uh, Yafet Koto, the guy that plays Parker, yeah. actually picked fights with him uh, in order to help his on-screen hatred of the creature. So if your experience of being in your first Hollywood movie is oh. you're not allowed to eat with anybody, and when you do meet the people, they bully you. Jesus. <laughs> I can understand why this was probably his last acting role. That's horrible. I mean, I feel sorry for him in many, many ways because he did a great job apart from maybe the jazz hands, but I'm sure that wasn't him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he got told to do that. But yeah, poor Balaji got bullied and wasn't allowed to eat lunch with anybody. That's really sad, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. But 
can I tell you another fact that will cheer you up? Go on. Because that is a sad note to end on. But apparently to uh, stop patrons barfing in his washrooms, a theatre owner in Texas cut out the chest-bursting scene from his print entirely, leaving audience to see the uh, the funeral right after reviving uh, Kane in the sick bay and confused as to why the crew was apparently hunting down the facehugger again. <laughs> 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 Wait, hang on. So they did that what? So that the uh, so that people weren't vomiting. Yeah, so people didn't vomit in the washrooms. They cut out the face, the, the chest burst scene. But that left people completely confused as to why this that's, apparently oh, healthy man great. went in went in space in a coffin. That's wicked. <laughs> that's like The Exorcist. But when the priest goes into the room, it just cuts to the priest leaving the house. <laughs> <laughs> And nothing happens. I kind of want to see this cut now. I think we should get the Texas cut in in the cinema. It's a six-minute cut of the film Exorcist (laughs) where a man walks upstairs and then leaves a house (laughs) and nothing happens, nothing offensive. There's no demon. That'd be great. So uh, I, I thought that would cheer you up after it, it definitely did. I know it definitely did. Paul Balaji. Um yeah, that was uh, that's Alien James. I can't really think of missed anything there to be honest. That's pretty good for no. us. Yeah. Um, as, I, as I say, with always, uh, please get in touch with us and comment on our Instagram, which is still going. I am going to pump some more time into that uh, venture because I don't go on there very often, but I will be posting some stuff about the new episodes as and when we do them. We will be committing to trying getting through the Alien franchise before Christmas. Yes. <laughs> I think so that's, a, that's, a, that's a good goal. Yeah, um, it's nice. I really enjoyed doing Lethal Weapon, and then it's nice to come back and do something fresh. So yeah. I feel like when we do a fresh franchise, it kind of rejuvenates, rejuvenates both of us and reinvigorates us a bit. So. Definitely. Um, yeah, thanks for that, James. Oh, did you have a favourite line? I wanted to shoot oh, one I... this in, but I completely forgot to set it up. Um, favourite line good... from the movie? Yeah, this is as good a point as any. But I, I couldn't find it like a single line, but mm-hmm. there's uh, a, a great conversation between Ash and Rip Ripley, where Ash says, Ripley, for God's sake, this is the first time we've encountered a species like this. It has to go back. All sorts of tests have to be made. And Ripley says, Ash, are you kidding? <laughs> this thing bled acid. Who knows what it's going to do when it's dead? <laughs> and Ash, Ash then replies, I think it's safe to assume it's n- not a zombie. <laughs> which, oh, that's a good line. Which I like that because it, it links back to you know the, uh, the way wasps uh, create zombies of their hosts. Yes, they do, yeah. But but, uh, yeah, the way he said I think it's safe to assume it isn't a zombie. It's like, I suppose <laughs> that's like saying it could be worse. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, my favourite line, which I thought would annoy you or make you laugh, is the bit in the canteen where somebody says to Brett, they say, Brett, all you do is agree with Parker. Can you say anything else other than right? And Brett just goes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes i like that too. don't you say That's anything good. else other than right right oh <laughs> uh, great anyway um yeah well uh see you guys uh, soon james we'll be doing aliens next um yeah we've kind of both agreed that this might take some time because aliens is a big film it's big for yeah. many different reasons there are also several different versions of it so We'll do Aliens, and we might maybe make two episodes out of it. We'll see how we get on. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, Ridley kept cutting it and recutting it, so yeah, we can do that with our episodes. Do what we want. That's what we do. Yeah. We do what we want. Right. Thanks, James. <laughs> and uh, thanks, we'll see you soon. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. See you soon. Thank you. See you. Bye. 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 <laughs>